Amen. The most devastating judgment for the Israelites in the Pentateuch is the death of the wilderness generation over a period of 40 years. The Israelites did face from time to time in the Torah sudden judgments where hundreds of people or thousands of people would die, many of them in just a very short amount of time. This was a judgment that week after week, month after month, year after year, for 40 years, was an ongoing demonstration of punishment upon a generation the Bible calls unbelieving and wicked and evil. This is a devastating judgment, not only because of the many tens and tens of thousands of Israelites that would have died over the course of that, those years, but the very drawn-out nature of this judgment as well. It also resulted in the inheritance of the land to be postponed for 40 years. Here they had been on the cusp of the wilderness, um, this uh, area known as Kadesh Barnea, and they had rebelled against the Lord in Numbers 13 and 14. Forty years later, the Israelites are being led by Moses, and they're going to end up right across from the uh, city of Jericho in the plains of Moab, and they are now positioned in the plains of Moab to cross under Joshua's leadership. What the book of Deuteronomy is doing is preparing the new generation to walk in faith and obedience and to not be like their unbelieving ancestors. In order to prepare them, Moses needs them to remember a number of things that the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers lay out for them. Uh, We have been in these early sermons of Moses looking at some of those spots of remembrance. In Deuteronomy 1, we were reminded in verses 9 to 18 of Exodus where in the book of Exodus chapter 18, Moses gathered around various appointed helpers and aides to handle the disputes and legal matters for the Israelite assemblies. In Deuteronomy 1, 19 to 40, we were reminded of their rebellion in the wilderness, how those ancestors, that Exodus generation, had rejected the promised land, had said, let's choose a new leader, let's go back to Egypt, those kinds of unthinkable things from Numbers. Deuteronomy 119 to 40 reminded us of that. We were also remembering last time we were together uh, that in Deuteronomy 1, 41 to 46, a brief episode was narrated for us that at the end of Numbers 14, right after their rebellion, they seemed to get a second wave of faith. And they said, okay, let's, let's just go into the land anyway. Even though the Lord's told us don't go, you know, I call it a second wave of faith. It ended up being more rebellion. This wasn't genuine trust in the Lord. But they panicked and they said, God's going to judge us. So let's just go and take the land. And the Lord had just told them, I'm going to deny you the land. You're going to wander for 40 years. Go back toward the Red Sea. In other words, in the opposite direction. But at the end of Numbers 14, we see them rebel again. Despite the Lord telling them, I'm not going with you with favor to bless you and to give you victory. You would be going without me. They said, well, then let's go anyway. In their foolishness, we saw at the end of Deuteronomy 1 what had happened by way of remembrance. In order for Moses to motivate the Israelites to walk by faith and not by the sight of the giants of the land and the great armies of the land, they needed to remember the evils of their ancestors so that they could walk faithfully before God. And we come to Deuteronomy chapter 2, 
And we are in the last year of Moses' life. This is approximately 1406 B.C. It's been 40 years since the exodus out of Egypt. And in approximately 1406 B.C., Moses is going to die and Joshua is going to be his successor. What we see tonight is Moses reviewing what happened after that 40 years of generation came to an end. So they're remembering the wilderness wandering and what happened right after that. And they are going to wander in this area uh, for 40 years. And uh, we don't know where all they would have um, traveled, uh, with the exception of those spots that are, not, that are actually named in the book of Numbers. Uh, if that's an all-encompassing list, then uh, they wandered around Kadesh Barnea in this area near Edom, and they were denied the promised land. What this uh, passage tonight is going to tell us is a number of places they're going to take you along this journey. Here it is. They're going to go from this area of Kadesh Barnea to the area known here as Ezion, Geber, and Elath, these two areas right on the cusp of Edom. And they're going to have remembered for them tonight in the sermon from Moses what happened back in Numbers when they arrived here. Edom refused to give them safe passage. And in Numbers 20, uh, Numbers 21 rather, they have to go around Edom and they're going to go up through uh, the plains of Moab and they're going to be here when uh, Moses in, in live narration and sermonizing for the Israelites is giving them these Deuteronomy sermons. So they are located in real time here in Deuteronomy and they're remembering how they took this journey. Through, number, for, through Deuteronomy chapter 2. He's reminding them in the last year of his life that journey of Edom and Moab. Getting a few things clear, the promised land is this area. You see Jerusalem, you see Jericho. Right over here across the Jordan River, the plains of Moab are where the Israelites are, positioned and poised for entrance into the land. But how did they get from here to here? They're going to go around Edom. Here is the Edom territory, Moabite territory. Those are places the Israelites are not going to conquer. There's going to be some reason for that, as we'll see. Uh, so, to review the history, we go from Deuteronomy 2, verse 1. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days, we traveled around Mount Seir. On a Bible map which I have to have maps to read things like this because I can't follow along with all of that. It's even trickier trying to teach it out loud and follow along on a map too. I'm going to do the best I can. But uh, on a Bible map that's projected here, he's talking about how we started this area back toward the Red Sea. They did not actually go back to Egypt, okay? But if they're going in the opposite direction, if the land is here, they're heading back. And they're wandering in this area. And Mount Seir is about this location. Seir is a catchword for the area of Edom. Knowing that helps us, because we're told here in verse 1, for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Where is that? Well, Mount Seir connects us to this Edomite territory. They're in this desert location, the desert of Zin, Mount Seir, Kadesh Barnea. And for all of these intervening years, they're going to travel, and they're going to camp, and they're going to travel, and they're going to camp. And you know what they're not going to do during those 40 years? Go into the promised land. For those 40 years, they're going to be outside the land of promise by God's punishment. That takes us through the journey in the wilderness. That's a very concise telling 
of what leads them up to that 40th year. And in verses 2 through 7, and all of this took place in the 40th year, in verses 2 to 7, the Lord said to me, then the Lord said to me, verse 2, and then in verse 3, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough, turn northward. Now that means if they're in this area and they're going to be turning northward, they're going to be facing a direction that would take them toward the promised land in some way. Now, are they going to go into the Negev desert and go up into the promised land this way? The biblical record tells us they're going to go this direction. And they're going to enter the land ultimately from the eastern side of the Jordan River. But the command is, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough, turn northward. And in verse 4, Moses is to command the people, you're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession." Now, verses 4 and 5 here are giving us some information that is grounded in earlier Torah material. We know that this language of, in verse 4, your brothers, the people of Esau, well, that's going to require us to remember some things. It's going to require us to remember that Esau and Jacob were sons of Isaac. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau, and only one of those brothers was uh, in the covenant with Yahweh and remaining in the promised land, at least for the, the overview of his life. He did depart, but then came back. It is Jacob. Esau left the land of promise, and he dwelled in the area known as Edom. So think of it this way. Jacob, his descendants are the Israelites. Esau, brother of Jacob, Esau's descendants are the Edomites. Which means they're now going to pass through the territory of their brothers. Verse 4 is requiring us to remember some Genesis material. That if you take the Edomites and you take the Israelites and you trace them on up, you know what you're going to end up with are the siblings who are the sons of Isaac. You're going to end up with Jacob and Esau. That means there is a kind of sibling conflict and tension at play here that Moses is reminding the Israelites took place. Because if you go to the book of Numbers chapter 21, the Edomites refused to let them go through the territory. What would have been nice is if the Israelites left the desert of Zin, where Kadesh Barnea is, and they can just go up right through the territory of Edom. Edom said, no, you will not pass through our territory. Edom forbade them to go, did not give them safe passage. And we're told here in verse 4, they will be afraid of you. Now, why would they be afraid? According to Exodus chapter 15, right after the Red Sea deliverance, there are some words here that are going to be relevant. Exodus 15, 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. What are we talking about here? Exodus 13 and 14 is the deliverance out of Egypt and crossing of the Red Sea and the demolishment of the Egyptian armies. And Exodus 15 says, 
These guys heard about it in Edom. These guys heard about it in Moab. And Canaanites heard about it as well. An example of the Canaanites who heard about it, Rahab in Jericho. Rahab says in Joshua 2, I have heard, we have heard here in our land what God did to the Egyptians. Exodus 15 says, word's going to travel. It's going to go viral in the ancient Near East, what God did to the Egyptians. Moses is reminding them of this. Deuteronomy 2.4 says, they will be afraid of you, so be careful. Do not contend with them. That's a shorthand way of saying, you are not to conquest their land. Think about this with me for a moment. The Israelites are going to head toward land promised to them. That's going to be this land when they cross the Jordan River. You know what was not promised to them? Edom. Edom was allotted for the people of Esau by divine decree. So you know what the Israelites can't do? Well, on our way, what if we just defeat Edom along the way? They are not to take the land. The Edomite land is not for them. He says, do not contend with them. I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. If you looked on a Bible map in the days of Joshua, and you see all the tribal territories occupied, you know where no tribe's boundaries extend to? Edom. There are no tribes occupying the land of Edom. That is in fulfillment of earlier um, divine allotment of territory. So Esau and his descendants are to take the land of Edom as their possession, and it will not belong to the Israelites in any future conquest. Now, there is going to be a role that the Edomites are to play. Verse 6 remembers this. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat. And you shall also purchase water for them with money that you may drink. Well, it turns out that if they're traveling many miles, they're going to need food and water. And, And there's a practical element to this. Though Edom will not allow them to pass through, Edom is going to barter with them. And they're going to give them some food and they're going to give them some drink so that when they go around Edom, they're going to have supplies from these people. Edom will not be their new land to conquest, but Edom will be a means of their sustenance, according to verse 6. Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 2 complement one another very well. So we have some supplementary material. Numbers 21 tells us they pass around Edom, and Deuteronomy 2 says Edom did give them some food along the way. And this would especially be easy for Edomites to do when they realize the Israelites are not here to war with us, and they're going to go around our land like we've told them they're not going to have safe passage through. So the Israelites are going to get some food and water, and they're going to purchase that. You add to this the fact that the Lord has already provided for them manna in the morning, six days a week, twice as much on the sixth day, so they don't have to gather on the seventh. Look in Deuteronomy 2, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. When they're reflecting on the Israel-Edom relationship, They're to remember God has sustained them and provided for them as a people. He has given them manna in the morning, and he has even provided through the Edomites here food and drink. God knows you're going through this great wilderness. Something very comforting there, isn't it, in verse 7? That the Lord is not aloof. 
He is not removed from their lives, but is actually intimately involved to commune with them and sustain them and provide for them. And think about that last statement of verse 7. You have lacked nothing. Which means that whatever they have needed, the Lord has supplied for their journey. We can take great encouragement here. This is the same language, as one scholar pointed out, that is in Psalm 23, verse 1, when David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You could translate that, The Lord is my shepherd, I have lacked nothing. That the experience of the Israelites in Deuteronomy, as they're remembering numbers, is the same experience David personalizes in Psalm 23. The shepherd of the Israelites through the wilderness is David's shepherd. And he says, I have lacked nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. What do we see verses 2 through 7 demonstrating in terms of the Lord's role for the Israelites? He's their shepherd. And he has guided them and he has sustained them. He has provided for them. They have lacked nothing. Really good news for the Israelites. Even through the judgment of that generation, the Lord has been faithful. Now look in verses 8 and 9. Israel and Moab. Israel and Moab. This is north of Edom. So you think about this. If they're going to go around Edom, you know who they're going to deal with? Moab. That's the next location to the north. So he told them, turn northward. Okay, they are. Edom says, you're not coming through us. So okay, how about food and drink? Yes, here's how much. And so they they make those deals. And now they're going to go around Edom. And that means they're going to deal with Moab. Well, are they supposed to conquer Moab? Let's see. In verse 8. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath and Ezion Geber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The the word Ar is a location in Moab that seems to stand for the whole. He's basically saying, I've given the land of Moab to the Moabites. So Ar is an example there. We have the same thing said about Moab that we had said about Edom. You are not to do battle with them. You're going to come up to Edom, don't try to conquer them. You're going to go up to the land of Moab, don't try and conquer it. So if you look at a Bible map for the allotment of the territories in the days of Joshua, the land of Moab and the land of Edom are preserved. Those territories were not given to the Israelites for the conquest. Edom was given to the people of Esau and Moab was given to descendants of Lot. Well, that's more Genesis background, isn't it? Now, do you remember in Genesis 19 what happened? Lot is spared from the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're told in Genesis 19, something happens that leads to the formation of the Moabites. Lot's daughters are involved in a ghastly act. And in Genesis chapter 19, both, the lots, both daughters of Lot become pregnant by their father at their initiation and plotting. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, who is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now marvel with me here. Edom, that's Jacob's brother's descendants living there. 
Moab, the Moabites, are Abraham's nephews, nephew Lot's descendants. And right north of Moab in this area over here, Ammon, the Ammonites, the descendants of Lot's other daughter's son. I think I'm saying all of that right. So you have the Edomites, Moabites, and the Ammonites, not on this map, but over in this area, that are all rooted in Genesis background. All right? I know this is exactly what you came here for tonight, and I'm not trying to disappoint. I'm giving you the expected explanation. All right, in verse 9, he says, Don't do battle with Moab. Don't harass them. Don't contend with them. I did not give you their land for a possession. Okay, so he's telling us all of that. We look at the journey in the wilderness in verse 1. Israel and Edom in verses 2 to 7. Israel and Moab in verses 8 and 9. Now things are going to get weird. Verses 10 through 12. In verses 10 to 12, there is this parenthetical statement. The Emim formerly lived there. A people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they're also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. Verses 10 and 11. What is going on here? All right. In verses 10 and 11, we're told that the Moabites called a particular people the Emim. And they were great, and they were many, and they were tall. Tall as the Anakim. In verse 11, the Anakim are called Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Emim. So there were people who formerly lived here in Moab that were giant warriors called the Emim. This is not the main point of the text. Most translations put this in parenthesis. But think like Nephilim in Genesis 6. Or the Anakim that are mentioned in Numbers 13 and 14. When the Israelites go into the promised land, they say, the Nephilim are there. The sons of Anak, the Anakim. The ancient world had several regions populated with mighty, gigantic warriors. And one of the kings is a king named Og, and we're going to think about him next week in Deuteronomy 3. We'll look at the rest of Deuteronomy 2 and into Deuteronomy 3 next week. And we'll see examples of the dimensions of King Og's bed to give you an instance of the gigantic individuals that populated this region. The Emim was a word for these people. It means people who were dreaded which probably means they were given that name by people afraid of them because they were tall and mighty. And in verses 10 and 11, they used to live in Moab. Now look in verse 12. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, which means we're out of Moab now and we're reflecting on Edom. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession which the Lord gave to them. Here's what I think the parenthesis is doing. All right, here here we go. There are currently Moabites, but they weren't the first people to dwell there. There were some former mighty tall figures known as the Emim. They've apparently been overcome. Edomites are dwelling there. They weren't the first to be there either. There used to be Horites there, and the Edomites drove them out. I think what the text is trying to tell us in this parenthesis is, The Lord intends these Moabites to dwell there. 
And the Lord intends these Edomites to dwell there. And they overcame the former inhabitants of that land. So in other words, by God's own providence and giving them possession of those lands, the Edomites are meant to be there. The Moabites are meant to be there. Don't go and conquer their lands. Because people before them live there. And they live there now. They possess these territories. So the Emim and the Horites were the former inhabitants of Moab and Edom. Okay. Verses 13 and 14. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. Now the brook Zered, I'm going to back up here to a clearer map. This is a little bit smaller. But the Dead Sea, which is right here, has this long brook coming out. And this is called Zered. It's a, it's a brook, this body of water, going back to this map, it is coming out this direction. You might not be able to see it. I can barely see it from my vantage point. But out of the Dead Sea, going southeast, is the brook Zered. Why is he saying, rise up and go over the brook Zered? Because they've gone around Edom, they've gone up to Moab, and you know what they're going to go up to in order to get into the plains of Moab? They have to go over the brook Zered. He's basically helping them follow a northward direction with these statements. Rise up and go over the brook Zerah. There's no going into Moab without it. They've got to go through that water. So they do. We went over the brook Zerah. And that means they are now in the plains of Moab, east of the, southeast of the Jordan River, poised to go to the promised land. So he says in verses 14 and 15, And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation that is the men of war had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. Verses 14 and 15 are giving you more specific, uh, more specific number than the rounded number 40. The 40 years of wilderness wandering incorporates the weeks after the Exodus, the time at Sinai for 11 months, and then the rebellion from Numbers 13 forward. So to be more precise, it's about 38 years that they were in the wilderness of the 40 years from Exodus to the Promised Land. At that time, from leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered, 38 years. So they're saying, when we rebelled against the Lord, until the time we eventually went around Edom and up across the brook Zered into Moab, 38 years had passed. The men of war, that entire generation, perished from the camp of Israel during that period. If you go to Numbers chapter 1, they, li- they listed in the numbers of all of the different warriors, the men of war, that were going to go into the promised land to conquest. A new census had to be taken of the men of war in Numbers 26. Because the first generation, these men of war, perished from the camp. Just like the Lord had said. The hand of the Lord had been against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. In other words... The 40 years of wilderness wandering was the judgment of God. All of the deaths over those 38 years was a perishing under the hand of God which had been against them. And yet, ironically, the same hand of God that gave them manna from heaven, 
that provided for them and guided them as a shepherd in the wilderness, but also to accomplish his discipline of that nation in their midst. What these 15 verses are doing is helping the people realize, okay, we were judged with 40 years of wilderness. How did that work out? He says, remember, you wandered and wandered until the Lord said, enough of going around this hill country. I want you to go to Edom. And and so they go in this area and he says, you can't fight them. Their land is not your land. And so they get food and drink and they keep going north. He says, Moab, don't harass them either. You can't fight them. Their land's not your land. And so they cross the brook Zered to await the death of Moses. Because at the death of Moses, the successor named Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. Now, I want to think about the New Testament with you for a moment. This is a lot of Bible map information, I know. Not all of Deuteronomy is like this, but Deuteronomy 2 was summarizing their a kind of travel log up to this point. But at the same time, it is good to look at the Bible maps and to see how certain places connect and the logic of the geographical movement. But most of these Israelites that are traveling during this wilderness are going to perish. Even the number of Israelites counted in Numbers 26 are men of war slightly less in number than Numbers 1's census. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 a reflection of the Apostle Paul upon this era of Israel's history. And when the Apostle Paul remembers this generation, he says, We all passed through the sea, the Red Sea that is, and we were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. He's reminding them of the spiritual connection to the life of God that by faith they received in the wilderness, but also the provision of food and drink miraculously. The Lord gave them manna from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. But I want you to listen to verse 5 because it applies to these Deuteronomy people. He says in 1 Corinthians 10.5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And what Deuteronomy 2, 14 and 15 are remembering is that the Lord overthrew them in the wilderness. Because they conducted themselves with words and actions that displeased the Lord. Now, why do we need to remember this? Well, Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. These things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Why does this travel log, why is it so long? Why did they have to go the route they did? Why did it take as long as it did? Forty years and going around Eden. Why this, you see, the detail in Deuteronomy 2 exists because earlier on, these were people who desired evil, Paul says. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. In verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. In verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. In Numbers 21, when they start heading toward Edom, 
They are ready to go back to Egypt in Numbers 21 in what feels like a, a final rebellion in that particular region. And serpents begin to bite the people and they begin to die. And a bronze serpent is built by Moses and raised up that all who would look to the serpent lifted up, this bronze deliverer raised up for the people, would not perish but live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things took place for us. Why do we need to remember what the Israelites were told to remember? We studied Deuteronomy 2 so that we might see that these things took place as examples of, of the consequences of idolatry and sexual immorality and evil desire that these people lived according to. And they perished under the judgment of God. In John chapter 5, a miracle took place that was not a judgment. This sign and wonder in John chapter 5, having thought about judgment highlighted in 1 Corinthians 10, let's think about a miracle of transformation. Because there are two places in the whole Bible where a period of 38 years happens with something significant that follows. In Deuteronomy 2, the 38 years were 38 years of wandering that was followed by Entrance into the promised land. And now I want you to listen to what happens in John 5. In John 5, we're told, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these, a multitude of invalids lay, blind, lame, paralyzed, And one man was there, and he had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been lying there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now the Gospel of John is filled with fascinating symbolism and metaphors, including the very careful use of numbers. And in John chapter 5, the the Apostle John wants you to know this person was an invalid. Now Jesus heals lepers and blind people. He raises the dead. It is not often where you are given a very specific number associated with their malady. But here, we see a number of lame and paralyzed that would go among these colonnades to sit and hope to get into this pool that in their superstition they thought is going to give us healing if I can be the first in. This invalid invalid says, I can't ever get into the pool. Someone's always stepping in in front of me. And Jesus says, but do you want to be healed? It's not this water that's going to do it. It's not your superstitious belief that's going to accomplish it. Do you want to be healed? And John tells us this man had been an invalid for not 37 years, not 39 years, and he didn't even round it up to the nearest 10. He says he's been an invalid for 38 years. And in the Old Testament, 38 years was the period of wandering before inheritance. Now, I don't want to overread anything in the Scriptures, 
But I'm willing to say to you that this 38 years connects to the Old Testament by John's design. By telling you this particular detail where in a period of wandering and helplessness and judgment, the 38 years were followed by restoration and inheritance and hope. And Jesus had come to Israel to be their shepherd, to lay down his life for the sheep. And I think one of the ways we see Jesus's restoring, transforming power aimed at sinners is through the lens of individual miracles, which might connect us to some story of Israel. In other words, Hope for the nation is cultivated by things Jesus does for individuals who might be blind or lame in some form, mute or deaf. Because in the end, these physical maladies were symbolizing the deeper spiritual dilemma of living in a fallen world and needing restoration. And Israel needed a savior. And here Jesus has come, not just simply to a nation that's been wandering for 38 years, but to a man who has needed restoration for 38 years. And Jesus says, you know, what you need is me. Because what they need is me. He's come to give life to the people. He's come to be their bread, and He's come to be their light, and He's come to be their shepherd, and He's come to be their vine. And they would be the branches, and they would be the people leaving darkness for light. They would be the sheep hearing His voice. All of those things. He's got water for them and life for them. And one of the ways John communicates the life that Jesus has come to give to sinners is He tells you a miracle story. So that you could look at this, and you say, look at this guy. 38 years. And now behold the help and strength and guidance and restoring power of God. And this man is good news for the land and good news for sinners. Because while another individual might not have been an invalid for 38 years, they might recall that in the stories of Israel, there is wandering and there is need. There is promise and a longing for inheritance. Is there anyone who's going to come to our land to give us that? And this guy learned in John chapter 5. Yes, there is. He's come to be the bread that we need, the light that we need, and the life that we need. For after 38 years, here comes Jesus of Nazareth, full of grace and truth. Let's pray.